but there'll be a way We're gonna drop it, drop on all the music they play on the bandstand We're going swinging, swing, we're gonna swing in the crowd And we'll be clinging, and floating high as a cloud The phones are ringing, my mom and dad are so proud I'm on bandstand Welcome back to The White Bikini my name is Marie White, and joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. Should I call you Nicholas Isley Banton, or just stick with Nick Banton? Hello? No comment. First, I have to acknowledge that we are being smoked out in the city of brotherly love. Yes, we're all going to die. I was making fun of a friend that was texting me last night about the smoke, and she's like, it's getting really bad, and she lives, I'm going to say, around Germantown. And I was like, no, it's not. And then literally this morning I went out to my car, was like, I can see the smoke. I'm not suffocating, but she really felt like she was suffocating. That's anxiety. scary. Yeah, I mean, anxiety will do that to you. And sometimes it's it's one of those things. If there was a, a comet or an asteroid hurling towards Earth, would you want to know if there's nothing you could do about it? It's that kind of thing, you know, it feels weird. And you always want to be honest with people and be respectful of their fears and their concerns. But it's one of those things where like, is it going to make a difference or are you just making people scared? So do you feel that we shouldn't be on high alert for the smoke we have problem? To. We have to, we have to be, unfortunately. I am worked up to a frenzy now about it. I understand and I understand that that's the case and that, that was kind of my argument. We live in the real world and in the real world, you have to respect adults' right to self-direction on our and autonomy. So it's interesting. You know, we just came off COVID and now we're dealing with <laughs> Canadian forest fires. And then there's a fire in New Jersey that's coming up. And Yeah, well, it's going to be very dry because from what I understand, we're now in El Nino, which is when you have an upswelling of warm water in the Pacific and it drives weather pattern across North America. And one of the features of El Nino is drier, warmer weather. So places like California that just got all the water last year, that's because they were in a La Nina environment. So that has switched. So we're probably going to see a summer worth a lot of forest fires in places that you don't normally think of as producing a lot of forest fires, but here we are. I do feel that this is gonna be a dry summer. I just feel it already, but it is summer. Summer is always a good thing. Summer is around the corner and on the heels of a great past musical weekend in Philadelphia with the Roots Picnic reunited and Usher, we decided it was a good time to really talk about the history of music in Philadelphia. And when I started my research, I really intended to go right to the 60s. But when I was going through uh, the Encyclopedia of the History of the Music of uh, Philadelphia Music, which there is a website devoted to it. It is well curated, well written. I felt that we really needed to talk more about the mid 50s to know what built up into the 60s and eventually what becomes the sound of Philadelphia, David Bowie, Bowie Live at the Tower. Then you get into the 80s. So I thought, you know, the 50s were a good era to start mid to late 50s. How do you feel about that, Nick? I think it's a great idea. I think it's always best to start at the beginning and understand how we got to uh, Philadelphia being for a very long time, a relevant place in, in rock and roll music. When I was going through this encyclopedia, I we could do a year on the history of music. You and I have chosen popular music. Is that fair? Yeah, we're, so just to be clear, we're talking about pop music, rock music, 
you know, the genres are, are wide and deep. So, but we're just going to keep it to stuff you probably heard on the radio. You know, hip hop, you know, Will Smith is a big part of that in the 90s. Right, right. But that's another part. My first memory of knowing anything, this is before my time and way before your time, was Bill Haley and the Comets. And I know that's a weird point of reference to start with, but it's really not because he was the first person. That's my mother's generation. I will tell you a brief Bill Haley story. So when I was in that's, elementary this school. This is random. Yes, when I was in elementary school, our music teacher explained that Bill Haley essentially invented rock and roll. So mind you now, this is the early 90s and concepts such as an expanded view of African-American history weren't really a mainstay in public schools. So for the longest time, I thought Bill Haley invented rock and roll. And for me, my point, and not that you're saying it is, he, of course, did not invent rock and roll. We know the history of the exactly. African-American roots in rock music. We know that Led Zeppelin had a lot of issues in terms of being, this is a sidetrack, but Led Zeppelin in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a lot of lawsuits regarding music that they were poaching from. Mm -hmm. But we're doing it, that's gonna be another conversation in another era in terms of maybe part two. But this is, I guess this is the white rarefied version because I needed to start somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you sometimes you just have to start and then get your bearings. And you made this political and you ruin everything. You're very welcome. Bill Haley was from Booth Wynn. He was born in 1925, lived to 1981, which I never knew that I thought he lived much longer. He was a country and Western musician, heavily influenced by the Western swing style, particularly the music of Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. I do remember that name. I do remember the group. I don't remember their actual sound. But for the Philadelphia area, Bill Haley is what I'm going to call the first famous person that I was aware of. I think that's a reasonable summation. Yeah, I mean, after that, it was very, very different and it does become less white. But he was the first person who was like, oh my God, someone from this area. And in 1945, Decker released the tune Rock Around the Clock but it didn't sell very well. But what changed it was that summer, they put Rock Around the Clock in a prominently featured movie called Blackboard One, two, Jungle. Three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, 10, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat rags on, join me home. a movie about juvenile delinquency that caused a stir for 1955, but 1955 was that first era that teenagers had a voice. Before then, teenagers really weren't allowed to feel any emotions, but by the mid-50s with the advent of Elvis, 
There was. It was kind of like their breakfast club. It's a really interesting metaphor. That song spoke to teenagers so powerfully. So it did become a hit when it was featured in the movie Blackboard Jungle, and it was the teenage anthem of the age. And really, what catapulted Bill Haley was the song was then used for the opening music for Happy Days, which right. I grew up watching. Was the yeah. show that was so popular in the 1970s. That's a great point. I, I think I remember the song as a standalone because I remember the black and white footage from was it Bandstand? Yes, that's that's the other reason I really had to go 50s because right. I feel Bandstand is an important part of our history. Totally, totally, and I just I just remember them. I just remember that song from music class and and the sort of the historical erroneous, as we would later find out, erroneous historical context in which it was placed. But continue, Professor. Continue. I wish you could play it in the background. We could, you know, pretend we're jitterbugging together. With the magic of technology, (laughs) it will be playing in the background. And we could jitterbug together. Let's let's not lose our minds. And I do remember, you know, Happy Days was my era. I was, Happy Days started in the mid-70s, so I was probably in junior high, late grade school. But as soon as that song came on, I didn't think about Bill Haley. It was Happy Days was on. So that catapulted him. And then I don't want to say Philadelphia, but at that time, if you were from Boothwin, really outside Chester, you might as well say you're from Philadelphia. And as Haley's stars started to fade, because in all reality, that movie came out in 55, the music just kind of sat after the movie, and then it was catapulted back in the 70s. Next to me, which is one of the most important things I think in Philadelphia, is American Bandstand. And it was a teen music and dance show that began in the Philadelphia radio program in the late 40s. And then was a locally broadcast TV show from 1952 to 1957. And then it did go national in 1957. And I do remember Bandstand was probably in 1952. My point of reference is my mother. So in 1952, my mother was married. So she wasn't going to Bandstand. But I do remember the talk about the importance of the show and Dick Clark Elevated from Bandstand to the, you know, obviously more prominent, it became a national show. And it left Philadelphia in 1957. And it became, and at the time, it's hard to imagine now, but America's most influential outfit for the youth pop market. I totally believe it. And culturally, too, just beyond the music, that uh, I think wasn't Bandstand also an integrated audience, if I'm not mistaken? It Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. Okay, explain. I, I think they made it comfortably integrated. Okay, so just enough black faces in the right places in the audience, but nothing that would be too jarring to white sensibility. Correct. You, they did, you know, they did show some African-American, but it was, Bandstand was basically a white show. I agree, yes. I mean, if you see, if you look at YouTube black and white, videos of it, it's very clear who the target audience is. It did contribute, though, and I'm getting there, Nicholas, but let's just go right there now. American Bandstand contributed to racial integration in the early years of American Bandstand. African-American musicians, African-Americans were rarely seen on television. However, Bandstand did feature musicians of the time, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, and Sam Cooke, all made appearances on American Bandstand during the late 1950s. And of course, it did help promote racial equality and intercultural understanding. It's a step, and and it's one of those things you don't normally think about it, but so much of our attitudes are shaped by television. So it's important to recognize, and I think 
I have this conceit that generations from now, you know, century or two, historians will look back on our time with marvel at how impactful a source of information and propaganda that television was for us. So I think I think it's going to be an I think it's going to be a very interesting phenomenon. You know, I wish I could have the the ability to see a couple hundred years from now to to gain a better understanding of really what's going on, but we're in the midst of it still. Um, even though you know its television is declining a little bit, but it, it, it was significant. I think it was significant for people to see black people and white people enjoying themselves together, being young. And it's about the music, and it's not about the politics, as as I think you would remind me. Well said, Nicholas. Philadelphia was the epicenter of the rock and roll industry in the late '50s and early '60s. That's why. When I started to look at all this, I thought we have to kind of address this. But its heyday ended in the, just like everything, in 1964, two major events occurred. First, Dick Clark, looking to build his empire, and rightly so, moved to Los Angeles. And that was a big deal. It took away that local Philly flavor. And then, of course, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan ushered in the British evasion. So all of these groups, the Sam Cooke, Chuck Berry, Fabian, Frankie Avalon, they were in pretty much a safe world. And then the the Beatles came and ushered in a different sound, a different mindset, and a different generation literally overnight took over. I guess the closest that I could relate to that experience was when Smells Like Teen Spirit came on the radio, how it just basically all the the hair bands, all the, the tight leather you know, feather that hair, makeup, loud screaming, ballads, all that stuff just went away. It went away. It, it felt like someone just flipped the switch and it was a completely new paradigm. It's about angsty, depressed, flannel wearing, um, melancholy kids or youths. And that's what the sound was for the next, what, 10 years. It was all that, that Seattle grunge sound. And in but I can only imagine. No, I'm sorry. I was, I was just going to say, finally, I can only imagine that with the the Beatles, how profoundly transformative that must have been. And when that and, you know, at the time, the Beatles were still wearing, you know, when they were on the Ed Sullivan show, Ed Sullivan was controlling what they looked like, what they wore. But by 66, those two years, like 64 to 66, you know, also with the, of course, coming off the heels of Kennedy's assassination, that whole era, I, I find fascinating. I can never read enough about it, but it was like a switch went off. So Philadelphia was kind of the hub of the music industry in terms of locally. And then once the Beatles came in, it just kind of took over. And there was actually a record label, which I, of course it's called Cameo Parkway, which we know is in deference to the Parkway, had a long string of hits in the 1950s and early 1960s. and. Full disclosure, I didn't realize we had our own label in the 1950s and 60s here. No, I didn't, lo- know that. I didn't Sorry. know that either. And, and just for anyone outside the Philadelphia region, the Parkway being the Ben Franklin Parkway. The, it's the big white road where all the concerts are held in the city with all the flags on either side of the road. You know, the, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, the Art Museum, and it was it was, you know, designed by Kevin Bacon's father, Edmund Bacon. And he wanted the experience to be that that area was like being in France. And I think it is. Yeah, it's it's actually really a really beautiful part of the city. I have to give Mr. Bacon credit for designing the parkways. It's an it's a beautiful venue 
And I think if I lived outside of Philadelphia, Philadelphia would not necessarily be a destination spot for me in uh, in terms of uh, a vacation spot. You know, I live here and I don't think of it that way. But I can understand for people who, let's face it, people come here to run up the Rocky Steps, you know, a.k.a. the Philadelphia Museum of Art. But aside from that, my, my cynicism notwithstanding, the Ben Franklin Parkway is actually quite beautiful. And you definitely feel the, the French vibe with the, the, the large arches, the wide avenues and um, the tree line walking spaces. And speaking of Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, and now I am jumping, you know, topics, but he's another one with his popularity that has kept a connection to Philadelphia. Whenever when, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, he went on Instagram and did a whole post and people went absolutely wild. So even though generations have moved on, there are a couple key people that bring the focus back to our beautiful city of brotherly love. And from an historical perspective, if you were to extend the Rust Belt all the way to the city of Philadelphia, so that would include, essentially the Rust Belt starts in Western Pennsylvania, uh, around Pittsburgh, goes through Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, so the industrial area of the country that was the lead manufacturing, it was the lead manufacturing epicenter in America and in some ways you could make the world. I think in some ways the death of the Philadelphia music scene, as we'll probably get to later, is a consequence of that that thinning out, that everything either moved overseas or moved west, you know, in the case with Dick Clark. So in a weird way, the music, the, the winnowing of the Philadelphia music scene kind of paralleled the winnowing of the industrial economy in the United States. So there are all these neat, interesting um, historical parallels. I mean, honestly, we could do a year on even going back into the 20s and 30s. But for today, we're focusing on the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and American bandstand, as we know, that's definitely before your time. But even I'm going to say in the early 80s, I remember Madonna being on American Bandstand and Dick Clark interviewed her and said, what is your goal? And she said to rule the world. <laughs> I just re- even remember by like the early 1980s, I respected and loved Dick Clark. But I was feeling with the advent of MTV, American Bandstand was getting a little corny. That's where I was going. I was going, I was like, MTV came along and just kind of ate everybody's lunch. So 82, MTV started. 83, Madonna was still kind of going through the motions of becoming popular. And Dick Clark was still kind of that hierarchy that people had to worship at. Mm-hmm. But by 84, 85, it was it was just he was just becoming, at least for my generation, I thought it was a little corny. But we have to respect what he built. And I remember years ago, there is a at the time it was a I, I shouldn't say it isn't. There's a local apartment complex in Delaware County. And I just remember always hearing like Dick Clark lived there and Ed McMahon. And, you know, I was younger and I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. But about a couple of years later, it's like, you know what? That's like 30 years ago. It's not <laughs> it's not a point of reference anymore. No one cares. But we have to give Dick Clark, you know, he did keep his roots in Philadelphia until he could go national. And, you know, you, you can't blame him. No, no. Dick Clark, you cannot discuss music in Philadelphia without Dick Clark, uh, a.k.a. America's oldest teenager. Rest his soul. <laughs> I love Dick Clark. He just seemed like a gen. Like I totally get the corniness, and and that's just a function of youth and maturity. Like when you're a teenager, everyone over twenty five is just dorks. 
Um, so that's perhaps a statement of like uh, the inexperience of youth than it is a, a true assessment of reality. But Dick Clark was a seminal figure, an important figure. And without Dick Clark, Philadelphia wouldn't have the cultural relevance in rock music that it did. And I think it does. And hopefully uh, a more relevant and more prominent voice uh, will, will emerge in the city. Cameo Park races we were discussing had a long string of hits in the late 50s and 60s. I'd like to learn more about them. But for today's conversation, it had Charlie Grace, Bobby Rydell, the Devels, the Orlans, D.D. Sharp, and most important, my you ruin everything. I do. I do. I was. I'm right. It's Chubby Checker, right? I loved. I love Chubby Checker, but I am a dork. Even generations past, too long. I think the twist is the most important dance of that era. I love the twist, and my all-time favorite song by Chubby Checker is Let's Twist Again. Let's twist again, like we did last year. We can't forget another record company called Chancellor Records produced, you know, again, getting into teen idols. We have to discuss Frankie Avalon and Fabian. I remember they're they're both from Philadelphia. I remember Frankie Avalon. And he was in Greece. So again, Frankie Avalon, you know, by the late 1970s, when that era was dying down, Greece brought it back. And Frankie Avalon was prominent in Greece. I actually, I met Fabian. Yikes. I'm he was really a heartthrob, sh- right? If, if I'm, my memory serves. Was that was that his thing? For the- yes, he was very handsome. I'm telling my story. I met Fabian. I'm showing my age and I wear it proudly. I went to a taping of the Mike Douglas show. And it was so weird. Jamie Farr from MASH was also a guest and so was Fabian. And when we were leaving, and at that time, when they closed the doors and you know my anxiety, you were not allowed to leave. Yes, yeah, these were the days before fire codes. And I literally was like, I didn't realize 
I could not leave and I was like just sweating through. I was so young. But when we were leaving, I went with a beloved friend who was rowdy and fun and she pounded on his limousine door and flashed him. <laughs> That's a memory to last a lifetime. You know, he's probably like, who's this girl? And I just, and I, I was very a little more subdued and she just op- opened up her top, flashed him. I still see his face. He, this limo window came down. He didn't even say anything. He smiled and put it back up. God that's bless my, his heart. That's my that's, favorite That's story. the way you handle it. You handle it like a pro. But, but you know what's interesting though? Like, I, I'm not going to steal the mic, but I think what's also interesting about this conversation is the fact that you and I can have this conversation in the way that how society is fractured. You know, I mean, let's be honest. We're talking about people that in many ways are before both our times. Like, uh, 100%. I remember Bill, Yeah, I totally remember Bill Haley. And Bill Haley was, you know, essentially older than my, my, my parents. The, the point I'm trying to drive at is how society's changed. Like, you know, I suspect for these kids that if it's not something that's happening now or perhaps something they saw on TV relatively recently, it might as well be something from the Stone Age. And, and I, my musical knowledge and some of these memories that I talk about are coming from my mother and also her younger siblings, my aunts. And I don't want to romanticize because I think there kind of became a point, too, by the mid-1980s. I was like, Mom, this is all corny. But Right, right. But you knew about it, though. I you knew had, about you, it. You knew enough to have an opinion about it. When I, the point I'm driving home is that we now live in a, in a culture that is so fractured and we're so alienated that we're using, we're referring to names and concepts and places that for all intents and purposes might as well be from a thousand years ago or before. And I find that to be fascinating. And I think we're talking about music because music is an aspect of culture. Music is a very important aspect of culture. It's one of those things that you go to church, we all sing from the same hymn book. It's that kind of, it's that kind of cultural artifact that ties groups of people together, ties groups of people together with a common ethos. And I, I don't know what it says, the fact that you and I from different generations have perspective on music that are that started way before either of our generations and it still seemed relevant and fresh. And now we live in an age, we live in an era where if it's not on TikTok, because I mean, like, here's a weird thing. Here's a weird digression. And, and I know you weren't planning to go there. Like, what do you think about the fact that so much media is consumed on TikTok in these like 30 second ads. So like kids don't even know the lyrics to the songs they're listening to. I mean, this is a weird point of reference, but remember the guy even just a few years ago was on TikTok running. He was on a skateboard and he wasn't young. He was probably not that he was old. He was probably like 40 on his skateboard with uh, cranberry juice singing, mimicking the lyrics to Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, and it brought the music back. It was like yeah. a quick snippet. But what does that mean? I mean, is it is it all about views and record sales? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Like, it, the record industry is an industry built on exploiting uh, talent to make a few people very wealthy. But I still remember when music was something tangible, where you'd go to the record store, whether it was Sam Goody or I think even Best Buy had uh, record borders, had borders music. It was a physical, tangible experience where you'd buy the album on CD or even cassette and you'd read the, the liner notes and you would actually also like learn the lyrics to the songs. Nick, you sound so sweet. 
reminiscing about the days you stopped at the borders in Ordmore? Or I do. I do. I do. I just. Baby Nick. I, I, I totally get it. I mean, I recognize I'm not I'm not old man shaking fists at the cloud. You know, I'm not doing that. But I'm just saying I think so much content is lost because basically it's an experience that's on or, or Kate Bush running up that hill. You know, when when it became a hit again on Stranger Things. Good for Kate Bush. You know, she probably sold and made more money in 2021 than she did when it came out, that song came out in what, 1983, 84, whatever year it was. From a financial standpoint, from a um, exposure standpoint, that's great, but people don't understand the artists, the artistry. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. People don't understand the artistry. Would you agree or disagree? Uh, No, I totally agree. And you know, my memories are my mother dropping me off in her car while I ran in and bought an album at a long closed department store she waited outside for me. I can see myself running down, getting running up, waiting in line. But the thing that about the waiting in line was, oh, what are you here to buy? Yes, yeah. Oh, well, I'm getting my, the album I bought was in 1978. It was Who, Who's Next? It was that sense of community that we had to do things together that just like you're saying, your point of reference, you would go touch it, look it, you know, buy it. Then you would talk to the person that was zooming you out. They would say, oh, my God, that's such a great product. It's all gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's all gone. It's all gone. And, you know, what has replaced it? I think there's so much I, 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 I don't you know, I don't know if it's a function of I don't there's not enough bandwidth. There's literally not enough bandwidth in people's minds to engage with art the way that we did. And granted, like we're not putting ourselves on pedestals. We're not saying that our experience of music is so much more, was it, it's deeper, more profound. It's just different. But I think so much gets cut out in a 30 second TikTok video that it, it's kind of sad, at least from, I think, our perspective, if I can speak for you. You know, and I was even at work yesterday speaking to a manager, she's probably 25. And we were talking and I said to her, do you think this rise in business is just a post-pandemic we're out and about? And she said, no, she goes, I think it's some of that. She said, but TikTok is driving every industry. Mm-hmm. And I had a 75-year-old woman come in and she saw, maybe not 75, but she saw something on TikTok about a facial powder. There you go. And I was like, wow, I really, and a woman my era was telling me about a TikTok and I thought, I'm not on TikTok. Full disclosure, I need to be because I don't feel as I'm I'm as connected. I am on Instagram. But, you know, then it's Snapchat. Snapchat is gone now, but TikTok, it's Instagram, it's YouTube. It's it, my bandwidth. I can only. Yeah, that's my point, because there's so many avenues now, but you're not getting anything of substance. And well, that's the trade off. You're, yes, you're getting exposed. And I think if you are a starring artist and you're really talented, you can really just you can make an amazing TikTok video. And a week later, you're signing a multi-million dollar record label. And I think that's great. I think that is fabulous because you don't have to, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. Just I just the idea of thinking, for instance, you know, a young young uh, female uh, musician who's really talented and just really good but she has to go through a Harvey Weinstein in order to get its success and what that ugh, I'm just grossed out thinking about it and just the horror of, of that kind of experience and you can bypass all that that's great 
but there's something to be said. We're talking about music, and the reason why we're talking about music is that music is one of those really important experiences. You know, once you've got your food, shelter, and clothing, what does it mean to be human? And it's hard to talk about that experience of being human without discussing music. And just how the avenues change. I mean, we're talking about American Bandstand. You went on, turned the TV on, you know, in the 1950s, early 60s. I mean, I grew up with one television. Mm, and I remember, that was the other thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's, you know, today people, you know, maybe, you know what? I don't think I, you had one television, so you didn't have a lot of choices. And there's so many choices today that it's almost chaotic. And I think I see... You know, you know where I work, but I see these young 12 year old girls for six months. They came in specifically for a particular bronzing drop by a prominent skincare company. And I mean, we had to take them off the floor because they were so crazed because it was a TikTok phenomenon. Literally, no one asks about them anymore because something else is now when girls come in, they say, do you have this? And I have to ask them, like, did you see it on TikTok? They said, yes. And what we're really saying is that uh, people teenagers, young people don't build relationships anymore. We had relationships, at least in our minds, uh, with our, with the music and the musicians. Oh, 100%. Speaking of Chubby Checker, I mean, first of all, I was from Philadelphia, but on a weird note, this is, you know, uh, this is the mid, this is the early 80s. I was on a double date with a guy that lived next to Chubby Checker. He lived in the, he goes, he's my neighbor. Like he barbecued with him. You don't have those experiences anymore. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's one of the ways that that music has changed is that I think we've broken down the relationship. The relationship, you know, you, you gave the example of standing in line to buy a record. For me, it was buying my first album and sitting at home and just reading the lyrics and reading about the song. Because, you know, yeah, I mean, by the time I bought my first album, I, get, I think I did, you know, we were on the internet. Um, this was what? early mid 90s did you buy an album or a cd to be to be honest i bought a cd um i hadn't i i did have an album player but i chose the cd because i just didn't that needle frightened me oh i i didn't like i did not like the experience of albums yeah, once cds the, the, came along exactly that that i totally understand it like in my home um we had a, a full uh stereo setup that was also one of the, the things too of uh, in people's homes like the, the the sound system especially like in black homes well i should speak i shouldn't say especially black homes i should say from my perspective growing up in a black home the sound system was the heart of the home in some cases rivaling the tv and vcr or, or for some people it was even a more important phenomenon um in the home so Yes, I did have that, but I chose the CD because the, the whole dropping the needle on the record and all that stuff and someone scratching it, I just I couldn't be bothered. Uh, so I did at least have was exposed to, um, to, to records. But for me, the, uh, the medium was uh, the CD, uh, the cassette at first, briefly, briefly the cassette. But then it was mostly CDs. And for me, I'm part of the problem. I at the time, I didn't have any like I was spoiled. I had my own record i had it like in my little sound system in my bedroom but the albums were always scratching but you know that was part of the experience of going to buy it looking at the back and really albums were a work of art they were you would they would pull at the center there were sometimes lyrics there was always limited edition things and it was a whole experience that could take up a whole day going to buy it driving home so there was that whole world experience of being out spending money locally supporting people who are working in the area it's a whole experience 
But by the time the CD came, and I was guilty of it too, I went right to CD. I don't, I don't enjoy the experience of albums, and I never did, and I still don't. But I'll tell you what, give me Apple Music, I'm clicking, and I'm listening, and I can get anything I want, which is is good or bad, because then I'm not going out and buying it. I'm not talking to the yeah. girl or the guy at Borders, and hey, and, they're coming, they're coming you, to two and, concerts, and and you know, sometimes when you buy that album, you get to the B side, and. You, you know, they're those weird songs that, like, you know, you they nobody could really format to play on the radio. But you listen to that album long enough. Sometimes it's not the hits that grab your attention. It's those weird, quirky songs on the B-side that really you connect with. The thing is, when you're going to this a la carte um, way of consuming music, you're not really forced to step out of your comfort zone and experience the music that aren't that doesn't get airplay you know what i mean no and i agree and you know one thing we didn't get into because we don't we're really lacking time was the importance of the and and maybe this is something i need to consider the importance of the philadelphia djs and the aspect of personality that they brought to the music. Yeah, maybe we can squeeze that into another. Uh, I guess we're gonna. This is a part uh, one of part three. Our three parts. Is that correct? My plan is to make it three parts. I think the next episode we should talk. I do. We do have a responsibility to the Philadelphia DJs in terms of how they built built the record, but also that sense of community. I know that you were not a big concert goer, but I also think that you were in a weird era of concerts. Is that fair? Yeah, because by the time I started going to concerts, uh, Ticketmaster really started to eat everyone's lunch. And it just, I mean, like you couldn't do the thing where you worked, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you hear stories about people working summer jobs to put themselves through college. Um, you know, for teenagers in the 90s, you know, you'd work a summer job and you'd buy albums and you might check out a concert or two, go to the movies, stuff, you know, stuff that teenagers, I guess, did and will continue to do. But by the time Ticketmaster started to control the venues, the prices went from something that you could, you know, work a summer job and maybe do one, two, three uh, concerts a summer to if I can do one concert, I'd be lucky. So that was my experience of the, you know, going to concerts. Yeah, I mean, I had friends who went regularly, but for me, it was just, I was priced out of it. And for me, you know, my, I was a heavy concert goer and what would happen is, and then I'm going to stop with the DJs, but I think we do need to look at the Philadelphia DJs. As soon as you left the concert, you turned on your radio because either Pierre Robert, John DeBella, WISP, what was happening is they were walking out of the concert at the same time. That's a really cool experience. Yeah, totally. I totally get it. They go right on air and they'd be like, hey, we're just leaving the show now. And they're like, they, you know, I'm going to say Don Henley because that was one of my memories of leaving the Spectrum and Don Henley listening to MMR. And they would go into playing their greatest hits and you drive home. You would talk about the show. They would come on. That's that experience. I don't want to say it's lacking. Maybe you and I have just kind of grown out of it. But at the same time, I don't think it's that small community that that I experienced. It's different to say it's lacking. You know, it's I think those young girls who went to the Taylor Swift concert will have memories to last them a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, it's Taylor, different. people it's were different. out. So it, it is different. And, you know, for, you know, honestly, Taylor Swift in Philadelphia would be her own podcast. The energy she brought to the city 
the jobs, the money and the excitement at a time that I think was so crucial for the all the difficulties we're having in the city. God bless Taylor Swift. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Hey, Marie, who's your sponsor this week? Oh, I wasn't really dumb, but we can be. <laughs> no, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. I'm not going to step on your... Uh, no, 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 we're good. Work. You crushed my spirit. It's what I did. Shops on Market Street, Westchester's premier barber shop, 134 East Market Street, Westchester, PA. They are Westchester's premier barber shop, providing the freshest cuts and biggest smiles. My best advice to learn more about how fabulous the girls are Please follow them on Instagram. They post about the work they're doing. You can book all of your appointments. You can chat with them through Instagram. And, you know, we're all about supporting local businesses and Westchester is part of our local family. There you go. Please remember to subscribe to The White Bikini on all of your favorite podcast services. And please follow us on Instagram at The White Bikini. Thank you for joining us today.